security can be a lonely, lonely business. But once in a while, two players find each other and they make it happen. Here at Pwned, we want to help them to understand, is it right or is it just wrong? Welcome to Right Swipes. Okay, so super special episode today. This is uh, really the perfect swipe. (laughs) (laughs) So we've been talking about right swipes here for the last few months. And Jack and I thought, what a better way to up-level the content of the podcast by creating the perfect swipe, which is saying, not only are we just drinking whiskey, like we're just going to the distillery, right? So we are at Mad River Distillers today. We are in Warren, Vermont, and we're sitting in a Rick house with John Egan, one of the founders of Mad River. And we are in this Rick house looking around. We're surrounded by very delicious looking whiskey barrels of all sorts of different flavors. Barrels of better days ahead. Yeah. (laughs) So with us today, we have John Egan. John has a very long career as a trusted legal advisor to tech companies. He's the leading partner and technology co-chair of what's formerly known as Goodwin Procter, but it's now just known as Goodwin. Goodwin, yeah. Yep. Some marketing people thought that was a good thing. Less is better. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's the same thing with Vermont Public Radio, right? Like they hired someone, they paid him a ton of money and they said, well, why don't you just take radio off the name and just call it Vermont Public? (laughs) (laughs) So So your primary focus, uh, supporting financing, IPOs, acquisition, private equity transactions. That's right. Right. So theme of right swipes here. Um, What better person to talk about swiping than you yourself. So I guess to kind of get us started here in the theme of this swipes episode, Jack and I have talked about the marriages that come with mergers and acquisitions. Some maybe perhaps a little bit more of a betrothal than, than others, but a question I had for you in your experience for our listeners, like in the technology law and M&A space, like you're the equivalent of a five-star general. <laughs> right on. Super seasoned, super experienced. John, in the larger companies that you see that you've worked with, and like just generally speaking, what are some of the things that you see them looking for when they're looking to make an acquisition? And if you have like cybersecurity examples, like even better, but like when you start talking to um, like these larger companies and perhaps they have a target in mind, like what are some of the characteristics that that they're normally looking for? Well, Justin, a couple of things. First, in terms of our focus, you know, historically, we were representing the small guys, the startup companies selling to the big companies, you know, selling companies to IBM, Cisco, Google. Over the last 10 years, as kind of tech has moved up market, matured, and and our practice has, we started representing more and more of the acquirers. So we've got a little bit of a view of both sides. I'd say that for the companies doing acquisitions, you know, quite often, it's, you know, looking to fill a product or technology gap or expand into contiguous markets. On the seller side, I think that, you know, one of the issues is I I think you need to be at a certain scale. 
for the acquisition to be successful, right? I mean, if you've got a great technology, but you're, you've got like $10 million or $20 million in ARR, you just don't have the scale. In a big company, you're going to get lost and they're not going to know what to do with you. So I think you have to have a certain scale. You have to have a certain infrastructure. And, you know, there's kind of this assumption that a big company is going to buy somebody, take the technology, throw the team out. Those acquisitions are invariably just not successful, right? There's some companies like CA used to do that kind of stuff historically, but they're just buying revenue streams. And that's, you know, that's going to trail down over time. If you want to buy a revenue stream that's going to grow, you need to have a team that's going to be able to support it and get integrated into your organization. So I think at one level, it's having the team and having the sufficient scale to make the acquisition successful. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. There's an interesting change in the marketplace. and I'd love to get your feedback on it, right? We've done a couple of episodes, like a more traditional, what you're just describing, like the Google acquisition of Samplify, right? They had a gap that style of management, they had an emphasis on simplifying things through the Google model. And so this made a good cybersecurity come from Dubai. At the same time, we see private equity firms investing, right? This is like the Trellix, um, those three letters I can't say, or I'm going to be that's drinking close. here in the Rick house. <laughs> here really close, yeah. Uh, but that's more a PE firm trying to do this aggregation of a variety of sort of like firms and try to slam them together. From your perspective, looking at it as, as Justin mentioned, someone with a load of experience in the space, how do you find differences in the way that smaller company may be dealing with should be considering, do I want to be sucked up into this mass, you know, being put together by the PE firm, or do I want to find myself as that niche product that helps support a platform from another larger company? That's a great question. I think that the advent of PE into tech is relatively new. I think five or six years ago, you'd be hard pressed to find a lot of PE deals where they were buying tech companies, you know, other than Vista. You know, since then, you've got Vista, you've got Toma Bravo, you've got a bunch of people. Um, we just, in the last four months, we sold on the identity side, we sold SailPoint to Toma Bravo, we sold Ping Identity to Toma Bravo. And I think the, the bigger players, like the Toma Bravo, I think they're developing theses, almost like the, the VCs have, like, we, we want to be in this space, we want to own identity. But historically, like I look at a Vista, they've got a playbook, and their playbook is we're going to buy a company that's growing, hopefully continue to grow it, and just squeeze the margins out of it. And I think that it's also changed the M&A market. And so I think nowadays, if you get to a certain scale, and you don't even need to be profitable, but if you're kind of, you know, within spitting distance of profitability or break even, you're attractive to most of these PE firms. And what will happen is if we're talking to somebody about a sale, we'll say, you know, are the buyers strategic? Are they financial? Is it going to be a mix? Invariably, in the last few years, if you're at a sufficient scale, it's been a mix. And the reason for that is, again, I'm looking at it from the seller side, uh, the PE firms will move quicker. They give you, you know, much more kind of deal certainty and the terms they offer, like no indemnity, no escrows, no liabilities that survive closing are great. Sometimes, you know, the, if you really want the top value, the strategics will pay more if you're really kind of critical to what they want to do. But you, you create this interesting dynamic where you get the PE firms pushing the strategics to move faster because typically the strategics will want to think about it, make sure, you know, work it up the chain and also forcing the strategics to be more aggressive on terms. And some people like IBM, they're always going to insist on an escrow. They're always going to insist on, you know, 50% indemnity for IP. But a lot of the other uh, acquirers have become more flexible in terms of what they'll do to compete with the PE firm. So I think it's a, it's a competition issue. The second thing I'd say is, if you're the first acquisition in a particular sector for a PE firm, then they're gonna look at you as the platform. You're gonna be the one that's gonna go out and do the acquisitions. Your team is gonna be driving the growth. If you're the second, third, or fourth acquisition by a portfolio company, it's really like being bought by a strategic, right? They're going to bring you in. And frankly, they're probably going to be more aggressive than a lot of strategic because they're so focused on cost and EBITDA and stuff like that, that they'll 
come in and cut and stuff like that. And so I think you look at it very differently. Like you're not going to get a chance to roll over if you are, the terms aren't going to be as good. I still think for most tech companies, there's a sort of presumption that a strategic buyer is going to be the better home if you really want to grow the product and address a market need. And it seems to me that part of your advice to the smaller companies who may be listening to us, right? Who, who may have that question, they have the opportunity to go either way. Knowing that there is gonna be this organic competition of interest from these two, one willing to give up on the technical financial terms in order to get the deal to happen, one perhaps being willing to move more quickly, right, to make it happen. I guess the advice is for those founders, those folks who are in charge of the destiny of the company, to decide what is it that they really want. Are they still passionately associated with the mission and the market that they've been working their asses off for? Or they may still be passionate, but are they interested in an exit? It sounds as though those are the two, if I had to do a onesie twosie sorts of questions, I think what you're suggesting, at least in my mind, is that they wrestle a little bit with that question. You know, which of these two things is most important to them? I think that's right, and again, I think, you know, if that's your focus, I think you need to understand where your company fits into the product roadmap of the strategic buyer. So you talk about IBM, you know, a good example of that is we represented Q1 Labs and we oh, sold sure. them probably 10 or 12 years ago to IBM. And at the time, IBM had a whole bunch of security assets, but they were all kind of disaggregated. Yep. And they decided they need to go out and get a SIM vendor to kind of, they want to get one console to kind of roll all this stuff up. And they thought Q1 was the, the company. And they get in there and they start talking to them. And not only did they decide that this was the company they wanted to buy, but they also met Brendan Hannigan, who was the CEO there, and said, they had a guy at IBM that was going to run it. And they go, you're going to run it. So all of a sudden, you know, it was a very successful acquisition. Brendan ended up running a $5 billion P&L. And several of the, the Q1 lab folks ended up having very senior positions at IBM. I think Almost all of them are gone because there's only so much of that time you can do, but they all got yeah. incredibly valuable experience. The product, you know, it's, it's out there now. Yeah, it was an interesting move. And Brandon was a really dynamic leader because I was there. I got acquired just before Sean and the gang um, got bought <laughs> at, at Q1, right? And Brandon was exactly the style of leader that the team needed. And he did a great job of organizing all that together. And IBM itself, Justin, went through a whole transition as a result of that acquisition, where historically, like my company, which did application security, was in development tools. And Tivoli, which was the systems administration, had a bunch of other stuff under a great guy named Al Zoller. And then there was this team that came in for this security purchase, right? And they brought it all together under one person, under Brendan, and IBM completely reorganized themselves. So to your point, sometimes the strategic buyer will completely re-architect their solution based on the quality of both the leaders and the tech that they're bringing on. Yeah, so for people listening, Q1 Labs is QRadar. Yes. So we, we know it in the market as QRadar, so competing with the Splunks and the logarithms and the arc sites of the world. So coming back to that piece, just kind of running with that, I would think in that specific scenario, security-minded folks have a different culture to them. Like they have a different style in how they approach business, right? So I would speculate that some of these acquisitions are almost like an opposite culture from what IBM has or used to have, right? Especially 12 years ago. Because I mean, we were going from like suits, right? And collars and probably ties at IBM to someone like Brian at Q1 Labs, who's probably like t-shirts and cargo shorts, right? which is like a completely different culture, but in order to capture that cyber market and like pull on those heartstrings of the practitioners, like you need someone like that because he can resonate with that demographic, right? Yep. But I also think 10 or 12 years ago, the cyber market was much more focused on the enterprise buyer, maybe the CISO. And I think they still are, but I think so much more of it is DevOps or secure DevOps. And I think the people kind of running those organizations 
even in the big companies, have a lot more say on where they want to go or who they want to acquire. You brought up a really good point, Justin. I just want to tap on it. It usually happens in the course. It just struck something inside my head. Sometimes the acquirers are completely left field, right? So I'll give you a quick example, RIM's acquisition of silence, right? I mean, that was, it's a big deal, right? Very, very different, right? They were used to doing mobile devices, more or less, right? And they picked up silence, which had really done some cutting edge work in ML-based characteristic analysis for endpoint security. Right, and it it really just changed the way that that company worked. And you mentioned earlier Computer Associates, which is really sort of systems administration platform. They did a bunch of security acquisitions that sort of withered and died. No, they wouldn't say they died, but they struggled, right? And some of them bounced out to great companies like Veracode's done, right? Coming out and been more successful after. But I think it's interesting to talk about the styles of the companies that are doing these acquisitions and their purposes. This is a great example of saying, I would imagine that in the course of a larger company evaluating an acquisition market, some of those decisions are being made or that those theses are being developed in a vacuum, like within that larger company. But then once you get out and you start talking to your acquiree and you see perhaps how dynamic they are and they know how to sell it and they know how to expand the business, it's very reasonable to think like someone like Brian in that example could come in and be like, or you say, okay, I can empower all of your sellers to create this new sales motion, something that maybe you guys don't know how to do or haven't really even thought of, I can empower that and turn that into a $5 billion line of revenue for you. But it's good that like IBM was like open to that and not so stubborn and stuck in their ways and basically saying like, we're IBM and we know better. This is just my view on the world, right? Yep. John, when you, when you look back over the years here, um, perhaps in cyber or, or just tech, if you had to say, you look back on like the patterns of the matches that were uh, successful. Is there like a top two or three things that you've seen over the years that like kind of guarantee like that love match and a good, like a, a good pairing between, between companies? Depends how you define success, right? If you're looking at, you know, what value did the seller get? That's one way of looking at it. If you're looking at, you know, where their product or their organization is sort of five years after the combined uh, company, it's a little different. I think the best acquisitions are when you're acquiring a company that's still on the growth curve. You know, people look at, you know, 30, 40, 50% growth. And at some point you see that starting to plateau. And a lot of times the sellers will say, well, you know, I, I don't see, I can't keep growing at 40%. And now's the time to sell. And I think if, you know, if someone's buying a company thinking they're going to continue to project forward that kind of growth and it doesn't happen, a lot of times that's when the, you know, the less successful acquisitions occur. I think the companies that are still on that growth curve and they're being bought earlier in that phase, I think are the more successful acquisitions. But also to your first part is like, there's a successful outcome for both, right. for whatever uh, their individual needs are, right? So the buyer is going to be looking for continued revenue growth. As one example, I'm sure many seller, depending on where they are in their journey, perhaps they're looking to change an industry and having more scale is helpful or... They're just looking to get out. Yep. I think it's a great example, right? Because it really fits with the swipes mantra, right? So it's two o'clock in the morning. If either party is sad, it's a bad swipe, right? Because either one of them can chew their arm off. And I think, John, the way you describe it and what you were just describing, Justin, is that the successful ones are where both go into with their eyes open and nobody is surprised what happens at the yeah. end. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and one thing I will say is interesting. The dynamic over the last several years, the advent of PE has reduce the sort of visibility that buyers have into the targets they're buying. Because, you know, a lot of times I've, I've, you know, we were doing deals last year where the company and the bankers would say, okay, you're going to get one hour with management. 
we're going to have like this, you know, abbreviated VDR, virtual data room. You can look at, you know, X, Y, and Z. You're going to make an initial bid. We're going to have some buyers. We're going to select five buyers out of that to make a final bid. And you get to do a little more diligence. You get to talk to management again, and then you're going to go hard. So people are making multi-billion dollar decisions based on three or four hours with management and, you know, very little information. You never want to take somebody home after last call that you've just <laughs> met, right? That's a, that's a very risky proposition. Yeah. And that's why I think, you know, the best acquirers keep their ear to the ground. They're aware of what's going on. They're tracking companies. If you're a seller, I think you also want to develop familiarity with the strategics because the strategics ultimately, and one of the things we do in an, in an auction situation, we'll tell people, start warming up the strategics three to four months before you launch a formal process. Because if you launch it and you give everyone notice at the same time, the strategics aren't going to get to the starting gate at the same time as the PE firms. Got it. So I think on both sides, knowing who the buyers are, natural buyers are, know who your partners are. And I also think, you know, if you have unsolicited offer that comes in over the transom, we had this the other day with a client. And it's interesting, but you're going to have like a week or two to react to that. You can stretch out the negotiation, the LOI, but beyond that, they're going to realize that they're being shopped. So if you have that list of four or five natural buyers or three or four people you're going to market with currently, and you can just pick up the phone and say, hey, look, something's happening. If you want to do something with us, it's now or never. And you can then precipitate almost a little mini auction. So I think both sides are, are well served to sort of always be thinking about acquisition, who the partners may be, what the terms and dynamics in any particular uh, transaction would be. Yeah, I almost draw an, an analogy to the housing market a little bit, like a super hot housing market. Like if you're not familiar with an area, like let's just say someone's moving up from New York, right? And they're like, hey, I'm going to go move to Vermont, right? And a house pops up, but you really don't know the area and you make an offer on a house and, you know, just an attempt to try to get a foothold in. I mean, not knowing the area could be the wrong house for you, but you're forced to kind of make a knee jerk decision. But mercy, like if you know the market, you've done your research, you know what good looks like and you know like actually what your requirements really are and that when you see it, you've already done the homework. So you can make an offer in confidence. Yeah. And that's a great point. And you guys know this better than me because you're on the technical side of it. But I think one of the knocks on the cybersecurity industry is that there's so many point solutions and there's so many things where there's overlap and everything else. And if you're a buyer coming into that market and you don't have enough sophistication, you could buy the wrong solution, the wrong technology and find out a year after the fact that this isn't where I shouldn't have gone, I could have gone and or this isn't making sense for my organization. Yeah, it's actually an interesting comment, Jack and I talk about that all the time, which is the idea that in cyber, we have a lot of features masquerading as full products, right? And in the world of kind of hyper funding and, you know, the market's flooded with capital, like it's really easy, you know, to be a pony with a party hat on pretending to be a racehorse for a little while. <laughs> you can't keep that up forever. So I agree. Like we see it all the time. And that's something like Jack and I spend a lot of time talking with people is saying like, this actually isn't a product. This is just a feature of this product over right. here. Yeah. Like yeah. If, if you had both of these things and you put them together, that actually makes That's a, a company. Of, yeah, that's a company. <laughs> exactly. So I don't think it'd be right for our listeners if we were spending our time here talking to John and not also understanding John as the entrepreneur. Right, We yeah. sit in the Mad River Distillery. Uh, for those of you who aren't able to smell it, it smells richly of the oak and the caramelized notes, and it smells of really tasty things to drink. So we're going to dive into that, I'm sure, and I'm, I'm actually physically dive into one of these battles. Right? <laughs> a little bit. Uh, but John, as someone who himself took the risk, 
right, to be an entrepreneur, right? A very, very different line of business, right, than the law or technology. But tell us a little bit about your thought process, right? Because I would also argue that the discussion we just had, right, and Jess was just riffing on, which was this, you know, all these technologies, crowded marketplace, I would say the same thing sort of exists in distilling, right? There's a lot of new entrants, right? There's a lot of stuff that'll give you a headache and make you want to die, right? And then there's stuff that's really, really good. So I'd love your thoughts on why you wanted to get into this marketplace, right? And number two, how you see yourself as effectively creating a strategy so that people know this is delicious and listeners, it is, but that this is delicious and it's not some rot gut that's going to you know make your hair fall out and be sad. A couple of prefatory comments. This started basically because of one drunken evening. Well, we, we have this old farm. Back to right right switch. Switch. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, 1840s farmhouse, and it's 28 acres, and it was once part of a much larger parcel. About 15 years ago, the owners of the larger parcel called us and said, we're, you know, we're thinking about selling the land, and we bought it just to sort of reunite the farm. And we had all of a sudden 200 acres, a lot of you know, fields, orchards, and stuff. And a friend of ours who was, uh, ran the Verlaine Chateau in town of the big sommelier said, what are you going to do? And my wife, because we loved wine at times, said, oh, I'm going to start a winery. And he said, oh, don't do that. Like all the wine that grows in Vermont is shit because it's, you know, the no good root stocks will survive the winters. He said, do something indigenous, like make apple brandy. And I'm like, I love Cavados, the French apple brandy. We'll start that. So we started this project. Uh, we have two old horse farms here. Al uh, Hilton, who's our head distiller, actually did all the renovations. Beautiful job. And then, like, we had literally thought this would be, like, a hobby. And halfway through the project, we realized, oh, my God, this is a full-time job. And Al, thank God, started getting interested. He was listening to podcasts, reading about the industry, and one day went to him and said, hey, we done banging nails here. You want to be the head distiller? He said, yeah. And the other mistake we made is we thought that there'd be a big market for apple brandy. Well, it turns out that the market for apple brandy in this country is infinitesimal. So we moved into rum and whiskeys and kind of went from there. Uh, and then the other thing I'll say is for 30 plus years, I've intellectually known what it's like to be an entrepreneur, to worry about making payroll, to you know having a minimally viable product, be competing with Goliaths and stuff like that. Now I viscerally know what it's like. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's been an education. But I, I, you know, our shtick from the beginning, a lot of people who got into the industry, when you get the DSP, which is distilled spirits plant license from the federal government, it allows you to make your own stuff. It allows you to rectify stuff you get from other people. It allows you just to simply bottle stuff you get from other people. So a lot of distilleries will buy neutral grain spirits or they'll buy rye or bourbon from someone else and just bottle it and call it their own. And we decided that everything we make, we're going to make our own from scratch. Everything we make is going to have some character, some terroir from the, the you know, region we're in. And we've sort of stuck to that. So that's, a lot of people will do gin and vodka to start for cash flow. Yeah. We didn't. So everything we make age at least a year, now two to four years. So, you know, we kind of struggled initially to get up to speed. And we've taken our time. You know, we think we've, we've grown. The last year we grew 60%, which was huge coming out of COVID. Or actually, we just bought a new facility in Waitsfield. And we're going to start building that because we'll be at capacity here in about a year. But that's really been our focus. And, you know, it's been a good place. Brown Spirits has been a good place to be for the last 10 or 12 years. We also have, we have a, a tasting room in Burlington, which functions like a bar. We do cocktails there and stuff like that, a uh, retail store. But it's also like our test bed. So what we'll do is, you know, we'll try different things every once in a while and we'll sell them up there and see how they go. So in some of our biggest sellers now, like our, we make a regular bourbon, it's a weeded bourbon, and it's very good, but it's like a lot of good weeded bourbon, smooth, sweet, and then four or five years ago, Al had the idea that we should make a maple smoke bourbon. Mm. So we, we did it, but then all, it, it was too sweet. And we didn't thought about this, but maple smoke, we thought would make it harsher. It actually made it sweeter. So with the corn and the wheat, 
it was too sweet. So then we changed the mash bill, added some rye, and it is wonderful. And it's got like 92 from wine enthusiasts and stuff like that. And that was like a special release. And now we've moved to make that one of our mainstays. So we do a lot of that stuff. We like to experiment. We like to try stuff. Agile booze development, John. I yeah, that. I was just thinking, it's like, what, what a way to figure out like product market fit. You have a place where you can like distribute it, test it, yeah. see what works before you you invest too much into it. Yeah. I think it's brilliant. So, and that's, you know, and, you know, knock on wood, I think we've been doing well and it's, it's great. We've got 10 or 12 people in the organization now. Uh, everybody's really excited about, you know, the bit, the company and the vision we have. So. And would you ever consider a swipe? Uh, <laughs> well, that's, that's a great question. My wife, who is my, so my wife used to work at Reebok doing sales and marketing and Mimi, our president about three years ago said, we need you to head up sales. So she's now doing sales, which is something she never really wanted to do. And so I think she'd say, I would sell this tomorrow. But my view is I want this to become a self-sustaining company. I mean, we're still profitable on a gap basis, on a cash flow basis. We still burn money because we have to create so much inventory. But I think we're close to being sort of, you know, break even on a cash flow basis. And I said, once we get there, we've got a ton of optionality because we can kind of continue on our own. We can get sold. I think we need to get to a slightly larger scale. And the other thing I've had to get my head around, I, I never really grokked when I started this thing was, I'm used to wearing, working with software companies where you, you, you sort of, you know, you distribute the thing and that's it. Here, you got to age stuff for two years, you got a physical product. But I think you do need to get to a certain size, have a certain amount of inventory. And what we've told, uh, it's an interesting story. Years ago, there was a company called SitePath and it was back in the late 90s. This, this is going to seem like an obscure reference, but they were, the biggest competitor was Akamai. And they're a CDN company. And Akamai was probably worth 30 or $40 billion back when that was a lot of money. And SitePath got approached by Cisco. And back then there were these pooling of interest rules. You couldn't talk about acquisitions. So it was all like kabuki. And the CEO came back from a meeting with Cisco and he says, I think they want to acquire us. And they mentioned 700 million. And Bill Kaiser, who was a yeah. partner at Greylock, was in the room. And he said, well, I think that, you know, 700 means that they'll pay you, you know, a decent amount of money, but they're not going to give you a billion. So I bet you get the 900 million. And he was right. And CEO said, what should we do? And Bill said, I don't know. What do you want to do? He goes, I'm an investor. I got like 20 investments. This is your one company. So you decide what you want to do and I'll support it. Good on Kaiser. And it sort of resonated with me. So we've talked over time and with Mimi and Al, we say like, look, you know, if and when that happens, it's your decision, not ours. Because, you know, we're investors now. My, my wife's a little more than an investor, but this is really your livelihood. And what you want to do is what we're going to do. Oh, that's awesome. That's great. Yeah, that's super cool. Uh, any, anything in closing here? I think perhaps the most important part is that we're going to take a step back. And with John's recommendation, we're going to start trying some of these. So in the show notes, we'll have a couple of different versions that we're going to be trying. Justin and I will enter in our commentaries on the lusciousness that we experience here. Uh, there'll also be a bespoke cocktail that I created specifically for this moment. So if you want to know what we'll be drinking later, and I'm probably going to take the recipe down to John's facility. It's down off of Church Street in downtown yeah, Burlington. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I'll perhaps drop it on there if you're looking for it. But for me, this has been a blast uh, just in terms of understanding your perspective. And for the listeners, you wouldn't know this, but I had the great good fortune to be advised by John in my last company. So I knew this was gonna be awesome. And I knew that he had empathy for some of you who are startup people are gonna be going through, some of you acquirers who may have some regrets who would like better advice. Um, some of you smaller companies want better advice. So uh, I knew this was gonna be great and it has been, but I think that's about all I got. Yeah. So John, for the listeners, if there is a technology founder who's looking for advice, how do they get in touch with you? Like what's your, what, what's your preferred avenue? Uh, email always works, jegan at goodwinlaw.com or, you know, a LinkedIn, but 
Yeah. And we'll put that contact information in the show notes as well. John, excellent. Hey, thanks for Thank you. Thank you both for coming. This has been great. Yeah, so for listeners, you need honest cybersecurity help. You know how to find us, pwned at newharborsecurity.com. If you like our show, please share it. Rate us five stars so we can keep all this goodness going. Also, if you need questions answered, please send them in to us at the pwned address. And again, we're looking for questions for the mailbags. If you have breaches of weeks that you want us to talk about or you have acquisitions, that you're just merely curious about what we think is going to happen next, please send them our way and we'll get you on the next episode.